The book of James, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. We begin a new series in this great letter tonight. Uh, we are going to begin by looking at the first four verses and hopefully have a chance to introduce uh, the book and the author, but also uh, to dig into this wonderful text. This is God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So James begins right out the chute talking about one of the most practical topics that there is, the topic of trials, right? It's zero to 60 in one verse. He hits the ground running. He throws us immediately into the deep end. And to get at what James wants to teach us, I want you to remember some recent times that you had a fever. Uh, I wonder if when you had a fever recently, did you have that strange sensation in which you felt both extremely hot and extremely cold at the same time? Right? Isn't that strange? You are burning up and yet you want to put on all the clothes and all the covers on your body. Right? And I wonder as well how you thought about your fever. Right? You may have considered your fever a bad thing. It was something you wish would stop and would, would go away so that you get on with your life again. Uh, but you probably know that, that ordinarily uh, a fever is actually a good thing. Right? It's our body's response to fight and to kill off the germs, the bacteria, the virus that has infected us. A higher body temperature right, kicks our immune system into to doing its job more effectively. Now, be careful. I'm not a doctor. I'm not giving medical advice. Don't go home and say, well, Caleb said a fever is good, so I don't need to bring my kid to the ER if he's got 104. And no, you know, the, you know what I'm trying to say, though. Here we have uh, this beautiful illustration of what James is trying to teach us tonight. Just like a fever, right? James wants us to consider that though our trials appear all bad, they are actually good for us. They are for our good. And it's precisely because God is at work through our suffering right, that just like a fever, we can experience at the same time joy and sorrow, joy and grief, joy and consternation right, because of the trials that we are walking through. I want you to see three things that James lays out for us as he begins this letter. First, the circumstances. Second, the command. And third, the cause. Uh, but let's just take a moment. We don't have as much time as I'd hope, but let's take a moment uh, to think about who this author is. Which James are we listening to here? It's not James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, the apostle. It's actually James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, we see James, the half-brother of Jesus, mentioned several times in the New Testament. He was one of the, the siblings of Jesus that did not believe in him during his lifetime. Uh, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, that after the resurrection, after he appeared to, to Peter and the 12 disciples and the 500 brothers at one time, then he appeared to James. And it's clear that the James that Paul is referring to is the James who at that point in time in Jerusalem was a pillar of the church. Paul mentions him several times in the book of Galatians. Uh, he's mentioned often in the book of Acts as, as a leader of the early church. And yet, notice the beautiful picture of humility. The humility that James will call us to in chapter 4, verse 10. Notice that James, as he begins this letter, 
does not name drop his brother, does not make any reference throughout the book to the fact that Jesus was his half-brother. Rather, he sets himself in the position of a doulos, a servant, uh, perhaps even a slave. He is one who is humbly called to serve the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But that title of servant of God also points us to people like Moses and, and David in the Old Testament who called, were called the servants of God. It points to the fact that James here is the spokesman of the Lord. Right? He is the authoritative representative speaking for God to the people of God. And so as challenging as James's words are for us to hear uh, this evening, both in this particular text and throughout the book, I pray that we would hear them with faith and with submission as the very words of God. So let's think about these three points that James lays out for us here in this text to help us to understand how to approach our trials properly. First, the circumstances. Now, to whom is James writing? And what is their context? Well, it's important that we ask and answer this question so we can rightly apply this letter and this passage to our own hearts and lives. You notice in verse one that uh, James says that he is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, it's possible to take that designation either literally or metaphorically. Literally, it would mean that James is writing to the Jewish Christians who are scattered outside the land of Israel. If we go back to the book of Acts, chapter 8 and chapter 11, uh, we read Dr. Luke mentioned that, that because of the persecution from the Jews, many of the early Jewish Christians had to flee Israel. All right, so it's very possible that James is writing from Jerusalem to those sheep who had been scattered in the dispersion, in the diaspora. There's certainly a Jewish flavor to this letter. Uh, many Old Testament allusions. Uh, James uh, is steeped in, in the Old Testament. He's going to speak to us of, of people and, and events and, and use uh, allusions to the Old Testament uh, and to Jesus' ministry throughout. Uh, but that passage in Acts 11, when it says that, that some uh, only spoke the word of God to Jews as they were scattered, it also tells us uh, that there were others who started to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, as James comes into leadership in the early church, as we see in the book of Acts, the church is becoming ethnically diverse. Uh, and Paul declares in Galatians already in this early book, Galatians, written just a few years after the letter of James, uh, that, that the church of Jesus Christ is the true Israel of God. And so even if the original audience was primarily Jewish Christians, yet we know that every believer, Jew or Gentile, are the spiritual Israel. We are the church. We are the true Israel of God. And just like Israel had been dispersed into Assyria in 722 BC and dispersed into Babylon in 586 BC, away from their homeland, so we as Christians, even now, are the scattered people of God. We are the diaspora, right? We are aliens and strangers in this world, far away from our true homeland in heaven that will one day come down to earth when Jesus Christ returns. And as James will tell us in chapter five, it is for that day that we patiently wait. We have been scattered into the world like seed, 
in order to bring the word of God to the lost, as Dean so beautifully encouraged us to do this morning. But because of this condition of being the diaspora, being the scattered, the dispersed, the 12 tribes scattered into the world, because we are in the world, but not of the world, because we've been chosen out of the world and yet sent into the world as evangelists, as salt and light, as witnesses for Jesus, having to deal with our own sinful hearts and having to deal with sinners all around us, because of these realities, these circumstances, our lives are rarely easy. As Jesus put it in John chapter 16, verse 33, in the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation. Or, in the words of James, his half-brother, in this world, in this life, we are going to meet trials of various kinds. Now, notice that James does not say, if you meet, but when you meet. It's not if, all right? It's when. James, just like his brother Jesus, just like all the biblical writers, James is a realist, right? This word meet has the sense of encounter or fall into, right? just like you might fall into a pothole that you did not see. Just like the man in the parable of the Good Samaritan fell into the hands of robbers, we are all going to face trials and tribulations that are unwelcome, that are unsought, that are unexpected, that seem accidental and random, that knock the wind out of us. We're going to feel ambushed by the suffering that comes into our life. We're going to be unready for these afflictions. They're going to hit us often in rapid succession, right? We, it's, it's proverbial, and it certainly isn't proverbial just in the 20th century, 21st century, right? When it rains, it pours. And notice that James tells us about our circumstances that these trials will be of various kinds. And this is the same word that Peter uses of trials in 1 Peter 1.6. It's the same Greek word that is used in Genesis of Joseph's coat of many colors. When the Hebrew was translated into Greek, right, this is the word that was used to refer to Joseph's multicolored coat. It's like Baskin-Robbins. Our trials are going to come in all sorts of flavors, all sorts of variations. Sometimes they're external, persecution, opposition, oppression. And James doesn't mention that in his letter. Right? He doesn't mention the severe, intense persecution. Uh, but he does mention economic oppression that the church was going through in his day. Right? But more of the trials that he has in mind are, are those common to mankind sorts of trials. Right? Just living in a fallen world, sicknesses, relational difficulties, as well as internal spiritual trials that are unique to being Christians in this world. Temptations to worldliness and to compromise, to conflict and division within the church, to pride, to not doing what we know is right. James is going to speak not only of the trials of, of hardship and deprivation and, and lack, but even the trials of prosperity and affluence, right? The, the trials that come when we have little and the trials that come when we have much. So here are the circumstances of James's first readers, and they are our circumstances as well, aren't they? Right? We understand inherently, implicitly what James is talking about, right? Trials are going to come this week that you don't know about and that you don't want, all right? They're going to be things that every human experiences, whether it's aging or cars that break down or homes that are damaged by severe weather, 
people who aren't happy with you, decisions that are made that you don't agree with, or decisions that you make that turn out to be wrong decisions, right? Things are going to fall apart. Things are going to break. And they're going to be things that we experience, trials that come in our way that, that, that only Christians experience, right? And we experience them because we're Christians, whether at the hands of unbelievers or at the hands of our own sinful flesh, the hands of Satan, right? Temptations appealing to our own sinful lust. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are believers. We're adopted sons and daughters of God. We know what God's will for our life is and his holy law. And, and therefore we are having to deal with a wayward heart that struggles to do what we know we ought to do. And we're having to struggle in the midst of all these other trials, right? All these other circumstances every day. Right, we are going to be encountering these various trials. And the question will always be, how will you respond? How will you respond? In light of these circumstances, how will you respond? Which brings us to the second point, the command. When we meet trials of various kinds, says James, we have a responsibility. We have a calling from God. We have a duty. And that duty is there in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. Now, I wonder if this is a text that you have skipped over as you've read through your Bible, acting like or hoping that it isn't there, refusing to accept it as true, as something that God has laid upon you as one of his children, one of his followers. I wonder if this text makes you angry with God, that he would tell you to do such a thing. But then as you're reading through your Bible, you realize that the same command comes up in Romans chapter 5. The same command comes up in 1 Peter chapter 1. The same command comes up in Matthew chapter 5 verse 12. And then again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, rejoice always, rejoice, 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 even when we suffer. And it can cause us to, to wonder, what is God thinking, right? Why is God commanding us to do this? Well, here's the thing that that James and all the other Bible authors know and take for granted. Though we cannot control what we will encounter, what we will fall into, what we will meet this week, we can control how we will respond to what we encounter, how we think about what we encounter, how we interpret what happens to us. And James is telling us, calling us to engage in an intellectual process. Right, to consider what God says about our trials and to take a particular mindset about them, to think differently about them than a natural man does, than we once did. Right, this word count, count it all joy, can also be translated consider, regard, deem. Right? It's what Paul is doing in Philippians chapter 3 when he looks at his resume as glowing, as glorious as it was. And he says, I consider it, I count it, I regard it as loss. Not as gain, but as loss, as dung even, he says, for the sake of gaining Jesus Christ. It is possible to, to, to view our circumstances, to view our trials in particular in multiple ways from different perspectives. But there is a right way to consider our trials, says James. God wants his children to look at trials differently than we looked at before he adopted us as his children. Specifically, we are to look at trials as an occasion for great joy, altogether joy, no matter how severe they might be. Now, let's be careful, right? James is not a masochist. 
James is not telling us that our trials are, are joyful in and of themselves. On the contrary, right? James knows what the author of the Hebrews is going to say about discipline. He believes that all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. But even in that sorrow, when there is no appearance of joy at all, James is saying we can consider, we can count, we can regard this trial as all joy. Not necessarily happiness, right? Because in joy, there might be deep grief. There might be deep distress and pain. Again, think of Paul in Acts chapter 16. He and, and Silas have been, been beaten with rods. Their feet are, are fastened in the stocks, and yet they are filled with joy. Right, praying and singing hymns to God. And we too, as we suffer, are to be engaging our minds, re-engaging, interpreting, reinterpreting our circumstances according to the word of God, according to God's command, thinking about our suffering differently right, than we're tempted to think about it. Not demanding an answer from God as to why he's making us go through this, not doubting his goodness or his wisdom, not quitting spiritually, giving up, not harboring bitterness, but rejoicing as we suffer. Now, let's be honest, this is not an easy command to obey. It's not a natural way to approach our difficult circumstances. And yet, by the Holy Spirit who lives within us, as we are united to Jesus Christ, it is possible for the children of God. And to help us obey this command, God shows us this last point. He shows us the cause. We've seen the circumstances, the command. Look at the cause. And when I say the cause, I mean the reason, right? The reason why God gives us this command, the reason why we can have joy in our trials. For you know, says James, here is what God wants you to consider about your trials. Just like in Romans 5, just like in 1 Peter 1, the reason that we are to consider, the, the cause, the reason why we can rejoice is because our trials are not random and chance encounters, but our sovereign God, our sanctifying God, has ordained our suffering as a part of his purpose, a part of his plan to make us more holy, to make us more like himself. He sanctifies us through suffering. I, I, I think, of it, you remember the books, maybe you saw this when you were a kid. I, I actually found one and bought it because I loved it so much as a kid, the, the Rube Goldberg book, right? Where you see the, the, the great machines that, that you, know, you, you push this button and out comes this result at the end. Right? Now, I, what I want to say is that, that Paul here, or James here is, is, is in a sense saying that your trials are like a, a giant Rube Goldberg machine, but not in a mechanistic or impersonal way, right? but, but rather they lead step by step to a final goal according to the will of our sovereign God, our personal God, and in concert with the exercise of our wills, joyfully submitting to God's mysterious means. Notice how James connects the dots here. Right? The trials that God sends test our faith, which in turn produces steadfastness. And as we let steadfastness accomplish its full effect, we are matured and we grow up in every way. Think about these, these parts of this Rubeberg, Gold, Rube, Rube Goldberg machine. Right, First, trials test our faith. We, we tend to think, don't we, uh, that James is a book about works, but it's first and foremost a book about faith. 
It's a book about faith, about genuine faith, which is why James makes so much about works, because those works reveal and prove the genuineness or the lack of genuineness of our faith. And these trials come and test our faith so that we might be revealed as to what we truly are. Are we false professors or are we genuine believers? And in genuine believers, those trials not only reveal, but they refine our faith. They make it even more genuine. Think about Abraham in Genesis 22, how God tested his faith by telling him to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. That trial proved that Abraham believed God's word, that he loved God more than any other thing in this life. That he believed that God could raise the dead because God had said that Isaac would be the seed who, in whom all of his promises would come to pass. So trials come to reveal faith, but also to refine faith. They burn away the dross of our hearts. They temper us. Right? They harden us through intense heat, but they do so in a way that we're not brittle, but rather tough, like tempered steel. Which brings us to the second part of this Rube Goldberg machine. The testing of our faith produces steadfastness, endurance, staying power, right? stick-to-itness, grit, a capacity to bear up in the face of pain. If you've ever held a plank or done a wall sit in basketball, right? you know what it is to have endurance. Right? If you've ever run a marathon, you know what it is to have endurance. Well, how do you run a marathon? I'm not a runner. I don't like to run just for the fun of it. Right? But my kids have done some, you know, cross-country running, and I've, and I've seen that it seems the way you, you gain the endurance to run 26 miles is by running and running and running over and over and over again. And the more you run, the more endurance you build up, right? Trials produce steadfastness, endurance, perseverance to the end. And finally, as James concludes there in verse 4, he says that if we let steadfastness, do its work, and don't defeat its purposes for the sake of comfort or ease, then steadfastness will finish its task, all right? Trials will have their full and perfect effect. Suffering will lead to steadfastness, will lead to sanctification. We will become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, James says. Now, let's be careful. James has no illusions that we're going to stop sinning completely in this life. But he does have that goal in mind. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? That's the aim. Perfection, maturity. Right? That we would love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. That we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves. It's an end-time goal. It's an end-time reality. And yet in this life, we see visible evidences of it, of the Spirit's work within our hearts. And so trials come. And they make us holy. They, they expose our weaknesses and show us where we still need to grow. They, they reveal our sin and our inability to change in our own strength. They show us our continual need of a Savior, our continual need of forgiveness, our continual need of the sanctifying Spirit. Our trials are like sandpaper, making wood beautiful, rubbing off the rough edges of our lives, making us increasingly beautiful in every way. And it's precisely because God is at work through our trials, making us what he created and saved us to be, that we are able to rejoice even in the midst of the most difficult circumstance. Right? When, when we consider, when we count, when we regard what is 
actually happening, that God is causing all things to work together for our good, that through many tribulations we are being fit for heaven, as the carol puts it. We are being enabled to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then we are able, by his grace, to consider our trials as an occasion for rejoicing, an occasion for putting our trust, our hope, finding our joy in the Lord, even as we grieve, even as we are filled with with angst, filled with dismay, filled with confusion, our joy is in the Lord. Now, as I close, let me just offer a, a caution, right, to sort of both sides, both ditches that we might fall into. On the one hand, let us be careful not to abuse this passage uh, by, by using it as the first thing we say to someone that we're counseling or comforting in time of grief. Right? There, there is a, a place at the beginning to weep with those who weep. Even Job's comforters, right? as, as horrible comforters as they turn out to be, at the beginning, they sat with Job and said nothing, right? if they only would have kept their mouth shut. Right? But, but, but that's the other thing we have to be careful about. Let us not fall into the ditch of saying that we should never use this text to encourage or to exhort a brother or a sister, right? to hear that, that God is at work and that therefore we need to do that hard reset on the way that we are thinking about our trials. That's a gift of grace, a gift of fellowship and community. As we're going to hear in a couple of weeks, when do we know when to be quiet and, and when to speak? Well, we need to pray for wisdom, don't we? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him pray and ask in faith. Right? But this text, for your own heart, apply it. Apply it severely. Right? Look at your life. Look at how you respond to trials and say, Lord, give me grace to rejoice. Right? Help me to consider the trials that you've been having me walk through. Consider them as joy because through these trials, through this testing, you're giving me endurance and steadfastness. And through that endurance, you are making me whole. You are making me complete and blameless. You're perfecting me. You're sanctifying me. You're maturing me in every way so that one day, right, you are who have begun this good work in me will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful text. Lord, may we hide it in our hearts. Lord, would you give us grace? Give us grace, we pray, by your Spirit's enabling to consider it, to count it, to regard it as all joy when we suffer various trials. Father, we ask that you would be pleased to glorify your name in and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.